Heavenly Father, we desire, Lord, to incline our ears towards you. Lord, we pray that we would listen to what the Holy Spirit is telling us about what it means to be Christians, what it means to love you and trust you in adversity and difficulty. Lord, we pray that this evening, Father, we could take our vision off of the obstacle and off of the pain and off of the impediment and off of the failure and that, Lord, we could squarely and specifically place our focus and our attention upon you. Lord, we pray that we would worship you and glorify you. Lord, that we would be willing to listen to your promises and obey your word. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, our Redeemer, the one who forgives our sins and reconciles us to you. Lord, wash us and cleanse us. Sanctify us and occupy us. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 51, beginning in verse 1, it says, Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you, for I called him alone and blessed him and increased him, for the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord, joy and gladness will be found in it, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Listen to me, my people. Give ear to me, O my nation. For law will proceed from me, and I will make my justice rest as a light of the peoples. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth. And my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait upon me. And on my arm they will trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. And look on the earth beneath. For the heavens will vanish. Away like smoke. The earth will grow old like a garment. And those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not be abolished. Listen to me. You who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my law, do not fear the reproach of men. Do not be afraid of their insults, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like, a, like wool. But my righteousness will be forever and my salvation from generation to generation. In chapter 51 and 52, there's going to be three phrases that are going to be reoccurring. Pay attention. Get up. Get going. Almost every child has heard these words. Almost every parent has had to say to them, pay attention. I need you to get up. I need you to get going. In these two chapters, remember what's happening. Isaiah is seeing the future unfold. Judah, Jerusalem, and the people in the southern kingdom will in the future be taken captive by Babylon. A hundred years later, they will open up the scroll of Isaiah in their pain and in their sorrow and in the devastation that they're experiencing. They're going to want to know what's going on. Isaiah sees the imminent fall of Judea, Jerusalem. He sees the coming Babylonian captivity. Isaiah has seen the liberation of the Jewish people by the Persian king Cyrus. In the earlier chapters, in chapter 48, in chapter 49, and chapter 50, Isaiah has addressed the unfaithful in Israel. Now his attention turns to the faithful, those who seek the Lord, those who want to know him, those who 
who long and thirst after his righteousness. With captivity comes hardship and pain and suffering. And the Jews would experience terrible pain, terrible hardship. And it it would seem like when the pain and the hardship and and the deprivation comes, that they're, they're ready to break under the burden of suffering. Some of you have been there. Some of you have experienced such pain and such sorrow and such devastation that you thought you wouldn't be able to survive. Now, Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells the children of Israel how to prepare for their future, the future that he has planned for them. I want you to think about it for just a minute, because I've said this over and over again. People in pain need hope. People in pain need to be told that God has a plan for them and a future for them. And that the plan and the future doesn't include perpetual enslavement and bondage to sin. The plan doesn't include living your life in sorrow after sorrow and pain after pain and problem after problem. The Lord wants to give us hope. And so he has a message for them. In the next two chapters, the Lord's message for the faithful, for the people who want to know him, for the people who desire him, the message is, number one, pay attention. Listen to the Lord. Listen to those who seek the Lord and his righteousness in the first eight verses. And then in verses 9 through 16, wake up, wake up. The the, the idea is... Lord, I know that you've worked in the past, and I know that you see you have a plan for the future, but I'm in pain right now. I'm in trouble right now. The the cry is the response of the people saying, Lord, are you there? I need you. Are you there? Are you anywhere to be found? And number three, wake up, wake up, Jerusalem. The redeemed will be set free from captivity. It's a picture of the believer being set free from sin and death. And so we'll come to the end of the chapter in the beginning of chapter 52 and then depart the idea of get going, flee from the captivity of Babylon. There there will be for us a, a picture of spiritual motivation and determination and then spiritual separation. People in pain are called to encouragement. They're called to be faithful. They're called to now focus on the coming of the Lord. And so the, the way that I would put this in, in, you know, how pastors do with the three Ps and a promise. I've got more than three. The patriarch in verses 1 through 2. The promise in verses 3 through 8. The prayer in verses 9 through 11. The protection in verses 12 through, through 16. And then the proclamations, and we'll get into that in just a moment. Jerusalem will receive two divine wake-up calls. The first call will be regarding God's punishment. The second will be regarding God's protection. So again, we begin with the patriarch. Look again in chapter 51, verses 1 and 2. Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. He begins with reminding the children in their captivity of where they came from. When Abraham heard the voice of God, he was a pagan worshiper of the moon in Ur of the Chaldees. He was a wicked, pagan, idol-worshipping unbeliever. Every person has a person in their family who makes that first step of faith. Who leaves the world of unbelief into the world of belief. Some of you grew up in Christian families. Some of you have mom and dads who honored and loved and and taught you the things of God. Others of you grew up in circumstances where you had no idea about the God of heaven. You had no idea about a God who loves you and was willing to to redeem you and save you. And you were the first person in your family who made the transition from darkness to light. That's what he's doing. He's, He's calling 
on the people to remember where they came from. And sometimes it's difficult for us to do exactly that like that. It's hard for us to remember what it was like to, to wake up in the morning and not have the hope of heaven, not have the promise of forgiveness of sins. We lived a life of despair and estrangement from God. And so he asks them, remember where you came from. And then he goes and, and he says, you who seek the Lord and the whole from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, Sarah, who bore you. For I called him alone. The idea being he, he didn't he didn't go forward at a crusade with hundreds of people. He decided to walk the walk of faith alone. And God blessed him. And then in verse three, for the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Remember what's happened. Their life has been a devastation. They haven't sang songs in a very long time. But all of the pain and all of the heartache and all of the destruction the Lord promises, I'm going to return to you and you're going to have a garden like the Garden of Eden. You're going to experience gladness and thanksgiving and the voice of melody. The idea in our own culture and society, I grew up or was born and, and spent a lot of my life in New Orleans. And it's the home of the blues. And you know the blues. Nobody knows the trouble. The blues are those songs that you sing in times of desperation and loneliness. But guess what? There's the song of joy. He says, listen to me, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation, for law will proceed from me, and I will make my justice rest as a light of the peoples. The idea being, I'm going to give you clear understanding and direction on what to do. In verse 5, my righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the people. The coastland will wait upon me, and on my arm they will trust. You know what's problematic with that verse? My righteousness is near. Lord, I, I thought your righteousness was near. You don't seem near. You seem far away. It seems like the depression is never going to go away. It seems like the pain and the problem and the heartache is not going to ever go away. But God promises and he says, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing near. My salvation has gone forth. The mechanism is already in place in order to save you. My, and my arms will judge the peoples, the coastlands. These are the foreign nations. The Gentiles will wait upon me. And on my arm they will trust. This is a, a messianic promise that the God of heaven will send the Messiah and the people will know who he is, understand who he is, and believe in him. And that whole nations will, will turn and have a right relationship with Jesus Christ. And it says in verse 6, Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look on the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish away like smoke. The earth will grow old like a garment. And those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will not be abolished. When he says lift up your eyes to heaven, he's encouraging the despairing, the hurting, the broken, the empty to look up. Why is that important? Because when we're in pain, and when we're in sorrow, the thing that we typically look at is our problem, the issue. The obstacle. The, the analogy that I like to use is, comes from law enforcement. If you've ever worked with law enforcement individuals and you're going through training, every once in a while they'll have a gun or they'll have a knife. And by the way, if someone has a knife and they begin to point, you know, they, they, they threaten you with the knife, guess where your attention is focused on? The knife. It, it becomes focused on the instrument that can hurt you. And so it takes every molecule in our body. It takes every ounce in the fabric of our being to turn away from the thing that we're fixated upon and to look to the heavens. He says, look to the earth beneath. 
For the heavens will vanish away like smoke. The earth will grow old like a garment. He's talking about the temporal circumstances. Those who dwell in it will die. But my salvation will be forever. He's talking about perspective. And my righteousness will not be abolished. The idea being that in the grand scheme of things, the only things that have true redemptive value and that will last forever are the things of God. And he says, listen to me in verse 8. Listen to me. You who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my law, do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults. Why does the Lord remind them? Because that's typically where we go when we're in pain. Our mother, our father, our brother, our sister, our well-meaning friends, they want to help, but they don't really have the right advice. Do not be afraid of the reproach of men. Stupid Christian, idiotic, Bible-thumping, Jesus freak. What are you thinking? Why is it that you're always reading your Bible and praying? Don't be afraid of their insults, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. He's basically saying, why would you trust the temporary... The passing, the temporal, why would you trust the momentary wisdom of human beings and forsake the wisdom of God? And then there's the prayer. Look at verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength. O arm of the Lord, awake as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent? Are you not the one who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over? So the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. Here's the prayer. And you might ask yourself, well, what kind of a prayer is this? Here is the idea. The children of Israel begin to wake. Awake, awake, put on, on strength, O arm of the Lord. The idea being, again, I know what you've done in the past. I know what you've promised to do in the future. But I need you to hear me now. Have you ever prayed a prayer? God, are you listening? Hello? Is there anybody home? That's what the cry is. Awake, awake. God's comfort is invincible. His ancient power will be renewed. His comfort is as certain as his existence. As a matter of fact, it's in this passage of Scripture that Paul has in mind when he wrote in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, he says, Awake, you who sleep. Arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Stop sleeping. Wake up. It's time to start living the Christian life. It's, it's time for you to come out of that slumber. Well, I'll get up and I'll read the Bible today. Today's the day where, where I'm going to pray. Today's the day where I'm going to make a change and, and things are going to be different today. This is a call of, of, of encouragement. It's this is, this is the kind of prayer that clings to God when, when the worst is happening in our lives. And, and don't, here's what you have to understand about the prayer. God isn't unhappy with this prayer. This is the kind of prayer when you pray, when you press close, when things are difficult, when things are problematic. It's when you get the worst news ever. And you still cry out to God. I know you're there. I know you love me. I know you're going to comfort me. That's the idea. The idea is God makes obstacles and he takes them out of the way. And when it says, are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart? Do you know who Rahab is? It's Egypt. As a matter of fact, if you turn about 20 pages well, maybe not 20 pages, to chapter 30 
in verse 7. Remember in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 7, it says, For the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore I have called her Rahab or Rahab Hem Shebeth. This is a type and a picture of God redeeming the children of Israel when they find themselves in the bondage and the slavery of Egypt. He says, are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart? The idea is this is the God who literally decimated the Egyptians with a series of plagues in order to redeem Israel from their circumstance of slavery. Here's the point of this. The God who saved you out of the world. The God who saved you from your sin out of the blindness and the darkness that you were living in. If that God is able to save you from the wicked, perverse lifestyle that you used to have, how much more is he going to be with you during your time of need? That's the idea. The exodus of the children out of Egypt was their calling out of the world. And if God has called you out of the world, then he can comfort you and protect you and provide for you while you're in the world. Stop sleeping. Wake up. And what's the wounding of the serpent? Is this the satanic bondage that hold people in, in Satan's supernatural grip? Well, again, in the ancient world of Canaan, they told stories of a serpent dragon. Um, they had myths and legends of a serpent dragon that would fight against the hero God. Well, why would Isaiah use the myths of the ancient people to make his point? Well, I suspect because, in a sense, there is a reality behind the myth. And the reality is there is a Satan. There is a devil. There is a personal wickedness that opposes you and that wants to hurt you. No wonder the New Testament says that we're to put on the full armor of God. The Bible says submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It's very, very difficult for me to communicate just how painful and intense the supernatural warfare is that gets waged against the Christian until you've experienced it yourself. And many of you have experienced it. You've experienced it where you sensed that Satan hates you and is going to oppose all that you do. I've used the illustration in the New Testament where Jesus, of course, speaking to Peter, says Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat. And remember my answer? You said no, right? We resist the devil. And look at verse 12. I even I, I, even I, if you're one of those people who underline your Bible, this is the place to do it. I, even I, am he who comforts you. You know what? Here is the idea. This particular person or that particular person can't comfort you. It isn't truly, it's, it's not religion and it's not the pastor. It's not your therapist. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of man who will die and of the son of a man who will be made like grass? Once again, he contrasts the eternal with the temporal. The real God who occupies the heavens and the earth. I, even I, am he who comforts you. We sometimes, and again, it's not wrong for us to encourage one another. And it's not wrong for us to comfort one another. But ultimately, our comfort comes from the Lord. Not from human beings. The Lord is not asleep. And so that's the idea. Are you awake? Are you awake, Lord? Yes, I'm awake. The Lord is not asleep. You might have thought that I was asleep, but it's me who's comforting you. The Lord hears our cries, knows our pain, and is willing to answer our need. And so that's the answer to the person who asks the question, does the Lord hear my cry? Does the Lord know my pain? Does the Lord understand my need? You know what the answer to all of those questions is? Yes. 
hears your cry. He knows your pain. He understands your need. The Lord is able to comfort. The Lord is able to forgive sins. The Lord is able to put balm into our wounds. The Lord is able to breathe life into our circumstances. The Lord is able to take that awful stench of decay and death and replace it with life. Here's what the Lord is basically admonishing us. Don't be overly impressed with human beings. Don't be overly impressed with human promises. But here's the other thing. Don't be overly impressed with human threats. People make promises and they break them, don't they? People say that they'll do one one thing and then they do another. People threaten. I'm going to hurt you. But remember what Jesus said in the New Testament. Don't be afraid of the person who can kill your body. But rather be afraid of him who can take both body and soul and destroy it in hell. And look what it says in verse 13. And you forget the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. You have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor when he has prepared to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? Look again in verse 13. And you forget the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid down the foundations of the earth. Almost every problem that you will ever experience will begin the moment that you decide to look away from God and forget about God. My world is falling apart. Where are you looking? Where are you trusting and whom are you trusting? You have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor. What is it that's oppressing you? Judgment? Debt? Threat? Failure? What is it that's putting the squeeze on you? What is it that's causing you to doubt what God is doing or wonder whether or not your life has meaning? Look what it says, when he has prepared to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? When we forget the Lord, here's the idea. When we forget the Lord, we become fearful and timid. But the promises of God should make us bold. When you remember the promises of God, I love you, I'll be with you, I'll forgive you, there's a place in heaven for you. I want you to listen to this little quote from Armando. Valladares, who was a prisoner of Castro for 23 years. I was thinking about this when uh, he recently stepped down and his brother has now uh, been made. But sometimes we forget exactly what happened in the early Castro years. In prison, his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ came alive. Again, Armando um, Valladares writes, and I quote, I had come to prison with some religious feeling." My beliefs were genuine, but no doubt superficial at that time, since they'd never been submitted to hard trial. I held to the religion I had learned at home and at school, but it was very much like a man who has acquired good manners or who carries along the lessons of the things he first learns to read without examining them. But very quickly I began to experience a substantial change in the nature of my beliefs. There came a a moment when seeing those young men full of courage depart to die before the firing squad and shout, Viva Cristo Rey! At that fateful instant, I, I not only understood instantly, as though by a sudden revelation, that Christ was indeed there for me at the moments when I prayed not to be killed, but realized as both that He serve to give my life and my death if it came to that ethical meaning both my life and my death would be dignified by my belief in him because of my situation it seemed my life would necessarily be a life of resistance but I would be sustained in it by a soul filled with love and hope those cries of ex of the executed patriots long live Christ the King 
down with communism had awakened in me a new life as they echoed through the 200-year-old moats of fortress. The cries became such a potent and stirring symbol that by 1963, the men condemned to death were gagged before they were carried out to be shot because the jailers feared the shout. People hate it. Tell them quietly or loudly. God is real. Jesus is real. The Bible is real. Jesus forgives sins. Jesus gives strength and hope and comfort. Jesus reconciles those who are estranged from God to God. Jesus Christ is real and He is Lord and He is worth submitting to and He is worth living for and He is worth dying for. Does the gospel encourage you? Does it, does it give you a sense that you can do what God has planned for you? Remember what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 118.6? The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? True courage doesn't come from a false sense of personal bravado. True courage isn't, yes, I'm willing to do it. True courage comes the moment you are willing to believe the promise of God when you believe it and then you're willing to say it. However strong we think that we might be, if we trust ourselves, we're doomed. If the Lord is watching over us, if the Lord is comforting us, here's the point of the passage. You can face anything. Isaiah, do you know what Isaiah is doing? He's putting spine. He's replacing the cartilage in your backbone with steel. Instead of weakness, we're secure. Because God is secure. I am He who comforts you. I am He who comforts you. Are you experiencing the comfort of the Lord? Do you find yourself experiencing joy and peace and comfort when you cry out to him. Ray Ortland gives this imaginary conversation concerning this passage between God and his people. He writes, and I quote, it's the, the conversation between God and his people. God, I am your God. You are my people. I will bless you, sinners. But our best, at our best, we barely believe in you. God. True. But I'm going to bless you. Sinners. But we don't deserve you. God. More than you know. But I will bless you. Sinners. But we don't live up to this. We're cowards. God. You are. But I will bless you. Sinners, but we're so entrenched in this world, we'll never change. God, not true. You are Zion. You are the eternal city of God. I will bless you accordingly. And everything will change. You will change. You will think differently. And when you begin thinking differently, you will begin feeling differently. And when you begin thinking and feeling differently, you will begin acting differently. And look what it says in verse 14. The captive exile hastens that he may be loosed, that he should not die in the pit, and that his bread should not fail. Here's the idea. The captive exile hastens. He makes a run for it that he may be loosed or freed, that he should not die in the pit, that his bread should not fail. The idea is he's going to make a break for it in verse 15. But I am the Lord your God who divided the sea, whose waves roared. The Lord God hosts is, is his name. In verse 16, And I have put my words in your mouth. I have covered you with the shadow of my hand that I may 
plant the heavens, lay the foundations of the earth, and say to Zion, You are my people. And in verse 17 of chapter 51, it says, Awake. Awake. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of His fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. Do you know what? Is happening there? Isaiah sees the people of God in a daze, in a fog. It's sort of like if you've ever seen your aunt, your uncle, your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, your friend, or even yourself in a drunken stupor. Isaiah sees the people of God in a daze, in a fog, in a drunken stupor. The people have been forced to drink the bitter cup of his wrath because of the Babylonian captivity. In other words, they have drunk of the wine of the fury of his indignation. Jerusalem has been devastated. Judea has been decimated. Their wives and daughters and sons and fathers have been killed. And they've been dragged away into captivity. And the liquor was more than their faith could handle. Have you ever met someone who said, my punishment is more than I can bear? Yes, I did some things that were wrong. Yes, I did some things that were inappropriate. Yes, I did things, but I can't stand it. I don't deserve this kind of punishment. They have reeled and they have collapsed in despair. No human defense, no human being can comfort them. Judah has refused to understand that it was God. It wasn't the Assyrians. It wasn't the Babylonians. It wasn't any human power. It was God and God alone who is dealing with them. And here is the idea. If God is against you, is there any escape? No. But if God is for you, who can be against you? Isaiah reveals the good news. And the bad news. You know what the bad news is? The bad news is unbelief and rebellion had brought them to a place of captivity. But here's the good news. The discipline is over. The punishment is ended. The discipline is over. The punishment is ended. And the same God who forced the children of Israel to drink from the cup of the wine of his indignation. Now the cup is going to go into the mouth of the Babylonians. And they're going to drink judgment. And they're going to drink punishment. And God is going to raise up Cyrus, the Persian king, to liberate them. The day, here's the idea, the day of judgment has passed. The day of punishment has passed. The day of grace has dawned. That's good news. Do you know when the day of punishment and the day of judgment passed for you? The day of judgment and the day of punishment passed when Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He bore the cross. He experienced the pain that you deserve. And he experienced the punishment. And God was completely satisfied with it. And then the day of grace dawned the day that he rose from the dead. Now to put this in the very real world in which we live. Sometimes people think that they say things and they do things. And that it is God's will or God's plan that they live in pain and sorrow and disappointment and captivity for the rest of their life. But guess what? Yes, there are really painful circumstances that each and every one of us experience at some time in our life. But there does come a day when the day of judgment is passed and the day of punishment is passed. And guess what? You have now have the freedom to live in Christ in, in the glorious hope. 
in verse 18. There is no one to guide her among all the sons she has brought forth, nor is there any who takes her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. Who's going to lead them out of this captivity? Who's going to provide comfort for them? Look at verse 19. These two things have come to you. Who will be sorrow for you? Desolation and destruction, famine and sword. By whom will I comfort you? Now remember what's happening. The captivity is in the future. They're going to be reading the scroll of Isaiah. Just like when you read the Bible. When you're in that prison cell. When you're in that horrible circumstance. When you're in that painful circumstance. When father or brother has abandoned you. Where husband or wife is is disappointed in you. And you're opening up your Bible. And you're hearing these words of comfort. And you're hearing these words of hope. And you're wondering how you're ever going to get out of this, this depressive pit that you find yourself in. Look at verse 20. Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of all the streets like an antelope in a net. They are full of the fury of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Everything and all of the circumstances around you look like your circumstances are never going to change. And look at what it says in chapter 52. Awake. Wake up. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. Shake yourself from the dust. Arise, sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Here's the point. It's time. It's time to wake up. The Lord calls Lady Zion to wake up, to stop feeling sorry for herself, to stop being the victim, to throw off her chains and to put on her elegant gown. She's to wear a special garment. And the reason why she's supposed to put on a special dress is because a throne awaits her. Now, remember, there was a time when she was called the faithless city. And look back all the way to the beginning of the book of Isaiah, all the way to chapter one. If you go all the way back to um, Isaiah chapter one, let me see if I can find the text. I should have written this down. In verse 20, I think. No, verse 21. How the faithful city has become, what does it say? A harlot. The old King James? Whore. How do you go from whore to the queen? How do you go from that position to this position? She is the queen by the power of God's grace. God is changing her, transforming her, molding her. By the way, do you think the Jewish exiles saw themselves that way? Do you think that the children of Israel on the side of the Euphrates felt like a princess in her party dress? I want you to think carefully for just a moment. The children of Israel who are reading the scroll, their hair is matted and their dress is covered with dirt. And on their hands are the chains of captivity. And in their future, it only looks like hopelessness. How can you read this text even imagine what it's like to be free. But you see, many Christians have exactly this same circumstance. 
They read the New Testament. They understand that they're saved. They read the book of Ephesians. They understand that they're chosen, adopted, and accepted in the Beloved. They read the New Testament, and they know that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. They read the New Testament, and they know that they're supposed to live a life of of victory, and they know that heaven is a place that's been promised to them. But they live as if they continue to wallow and wade in their own self-pity. And this is why we need the gospel over and over and over again. And that's why when you come here on Sundays and you come here on Wednesdays, you come here on Mondays, you participate in small groups and you hear the same message over and over again and you wonder, why do I have to hear this over and over again? Martin Luther wrote, it cannot be beaten into our ears enough or too much. Yes, though we learn it and understand it well, yet there is none that takes hold of it perfectly or believes it with all of his heart. So frail a thing is our flesh and so disobedient are we to the Spirit of God that we have to come together and we have to pray and we have to remind ourselves over and over and over again. Even though we might be experiencing a time of disability and deprivation and disappointment, There is a time of grace, and there is a time of redemption, and the time has come to wake up. The truth? The truth? We barely believe that we are forgiven. God, I hope so. We barely believe we're going to heaven. So don't be surprised when you see me. And I remind you and I say, I need to remind you that you're forgiven. I need to remind you that you've experienced the grace of God. I need to remind you that you're going to heaven and you're not going to hell. I need to remind you that no matter how painful and problematic the circumstances are right now, you are chosen and adopted and accepted. Remember in Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Not for the theory, but for the reality. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is for the enjoyment of freedom that Christ has set us free. He set you free so that you could experience and enjoy freedom. Not so that you would have to live a life of addiction and enslavement. Not so that you would have to be manipulated and perverted and misguided. This is what each Christian experiences who toys with the idea that they're free to abuse God's grace. And they're free to live a lifestyle of sin. And they they trick themselves into thinking that it doesn't matter. But nothing could matter more. Because what you wind up doing is tricking yourself into living a life of absolute joylessness. Our identity in Christ doesn't give us the freedom to oppress each other. And look what it says. Shake yourself from the dust. Arise. Sit down, O Jerusalem, in verse 2. Loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. The Lord is is saying to them, I have made a mechanism of freedom for you. The slavery is over. The discipline is ended. The punishment is gone. It's time to throw off the yoke. You don't have to be a drunk for the rest of your life. You don't have to be a drug addict. You don't have to be a pornographer. That, doesn't, that isn't who you are. There comes a point where the pain, the problem, the addiction, the, the enslavement, no matter what it is, it's time for it to come to an end. And look what it says in verse 3. For thus says the Lord, you have sold yourselves for nothing. And you shall be redeemed without money. You sold yourselves into slavery, but it didn't have to be that way. And you're going to be redeemed without money. The New Testament puts it this way. You haven't been purchased with something as base as silver and gold, but you've been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. And look what it says in verse 4. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now, therefore, what have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing? Egypt, they became a nation. Assyria oppressed them. Babylon, 
slavery. That my people should be taken away for nothing. Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Lord. And my name is blasphemed continually every day. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. It's the real God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, of Joseph and David, is going to free them and liberate them. And listen to this. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news. Lexi Montgomery was walking back in the hallway and she was looking at this marble foot that that Doug Smith gave me. Whose foot is that? You know, the truth is, the foot isn't the most beautiful part of the anatomy. I mean, let's just be real here. Some people's feet are like gross. But how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. How can something that ugly all of a sudden become very attractive? Because, look what it says, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Here's the idea. Salvation has come. The good news has come. Salvation is redemption. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now think about that. Because in Babylon... They're thinking that their God has been defeated. That God has forsaken them and left them. No, God is still on the throne. God still reigns. Your watchmen shall lift up their voices. With their voices they shall sing together. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. Bring forth into joy. Sing together. You waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The the Lord has made bare His holy arm. That means He's exposed His strength. And the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And then verse 11, get up, go, go, depart, depart. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. The idea is you're in Babylon. You're in the world. You're enslaved. I've redeemed you. I've reconciled you. It's time for you to get up and leave the bondage and the slavery. This is a call to purity and cleanliness. This is a call that there comes a point where you leave the captivity and now you are free once again to serve the Lord in humility and in honesty. It says, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Be clean. Don't go back into all of the wicked habits that you experienced early on. You who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight, for the Lord will go before you. In other words, here's what the Lord isn't saying. Hey, you have to make a run for it. You have to run for your lives because the devil's after you. No, you can walk with courage and with freedom in the direction of hope. Look what it says. And the God of Israel will be your rear guard. You mean I don't have to keep looking over my shoulder that the devil's after me? No. The Lord is going to protect your your front and your hinder parts. And look at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted. He shall be extolled very high. Who is the servant? It's the Messiah. It's the suffering servant who's going to be talked about at great length in in, in chapter 53. He shall be exalted. That means he's going to be lifted up. But it doesn't necessarily mean what you think it means. Lifted up in what way? Remember what the Son of Man will say in the New Testament? If I be lifted up, same word, exalted, I will draw all people to myself. The lifting up and the exaltation is his crucifixion. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. You all know what that is. 
The literal rendering presents a shocking picture. His visage was marred more than that of any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Here's the idea. The brutalities that are going to be depicted in chapter 53 are picturing a suffering servant who is beaten so severely that he no longer bears a resemblance to a human being. Now again, people in law enforcement and emergency services and hospital workers, they sometimes are able to see people who have been severely beaten. Where they have been beaten so bad that their whole face swells and it distends and it turns a different color. I don't know if you've ever seen a person who was so severely beaten that they did not even resemble a human being. But it becomes a type and a picture of the Messiah who will be beaten beyond all recognition. And look at verse 15. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Compare the literal fulfillment. It's in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where the people of the nations are described as having been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. The word translated sprinkle is commonly used in the Pentateuch to describe the cleansing of the vessels in the temple when the priests would take the hyssop and they would dip them in the basins of the blood and they would sprinkle the blood. It's more like thrown on in the during the Passover when they cut the Passover lamb's throat and they put the blood in a basin and they put the hyssop in and they would brush the blood over the top of the door and the lentil forming a cross made out of blood. And here's what it says. Kings shall shut their mouths at him for what had not been told them they shall see and what they had not heard they shall consider. Do you realize... Paul quotes this exact verse in the book of Romans. I don't have time to show you. But in Romans chapter 15, Paul talks about his journeys, how he went from Jerusalem to Illyricum. That everywhere he went, and whatever he said, he went from Jerusalem to Illyricum, which is modern Croatia, Bulgaria, Albania, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, talking about the Messiah. But I don't have time. But you do. When you get a chance, turn to the book of Romans. I'll at least try and give you the verse. Chapter 15. Where... He says in verse 17, Therefore I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus and the things which pertain to God, for I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient in many signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I've made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. Verse 21, But as it is written, To whom he was not announced, they shall see and those who have not heard shall understand he's quoting the passage that we just read he'll go places and he'll do things and he'll proclaim the everlasting message of the suffering servant who has come the promise was kept. Salvation has come. The day of grace has dawned. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God. Lord, we pray that we would hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Two chapters, oh ye of little faith. Let's stand. And let's sing.